0: Turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 9 as we continue to look at these names of the Messiah that Isaiah gives us. Isaiah chapter 9, and then we'll, uh, just verses 6 and 7. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Heavenly Father, as we come before you today to read these, these brief words from Scripture, we pray that the Holy Spirit would descend upon us and provide us understanding, These words are so important for us to understand and to grasp who Christ is and why he came in this fashion and why he was who he was the necessity of the Son of God coming for us. Open our eyes to this, we pray, in his name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now, I'm immediately going to be in trouble because I'm going to quote from a very famous sermon, which I can't remember who did it, nor could I find it. So, maybe it was my sermon. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. I think it was an AME pastor, though, um, and he preached this sermon, and it, it, the entire content of the sermon consisted of the names of Jesus. There are over 200 names of Jesus throughout Scripture, and he went on for probably, you know, 40 or 50 minutes with the names of Jesus. Now, you might think, well, I, I come from a pretty Presbyterian world, and, and I, you know, that sounds pretty boring. But this was an AME church. So it was a happening sermon. And they were up clapping and cheering, and he went on and on and on and um, on. So, so we come to this section of Isaiah with some of the names of Jesus. And I just, I'm just going to highlight some names of Jesus. I won't do all 200 because that would take us 40 minutes because I know you all will be up cheering and everything. Um, but, but just to reinforce what Isaiah says. Christ is the Almighty, the Almighty God, the Alpha and Omega, the Creator, the Creator of all things. He is eternal, Ancient of Days, Eternal Head, Eternal Judge, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Israel, God of Jacob, God of thy Father, Lord from heaven, Lord God, Lord God Almighty, Lord God of hosts, Lord Jehovah, Lord Jesus, Lord of all, Lord of the dead, Lord of the glory, Lord of the living. Lord of Lords, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord Omnipotent, Lord our Righteousness, God of the whole earth. That's who Jesus is, and that's just 20. Okay? That's who Jesus is, from Scripture. So when we look at Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus wasn't just a wonderful counselor. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a good example. He is, for today's passage, mighty God mighty God. Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 about a virgin bearing a son, and we've looked up Isaiah 7. We know kind of the context of that from weeks past, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, okay? Now, now you have to imagine that and, and try to get your minds around that. God with us Not God up there, not God completely separate from us, but God comes and dwells among us, becomes one of us, becomes like us because he is 100% human and 100% divine. God comes and dwells with us. This child that was to be born, that was to be given, would be called Mighty God, and then later we'll see the Everlasting Father. Now, in other places in the New Testament that reinforce this, When the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was to be the mother of the Messiah, it says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Apostle John introduces Jesus in this way in John 1:1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's a very important passage. Because when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door, they're going to reinterpret that passage to say he was a God. Okay, just be ready for that. But there is no equivocation in Scripture. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. The definitive, definitive article, he is the Son of God. Fully divine, fully human, the only possible sacrifice to atone for our sin. Now here's an example of how easily we can insert error into that, whether known or unknown. Now, here's a good rule of thumb before I I quote this. We don't rely on our politicians to do our theology for us. Okay? Keep that in mind. Nor should you rely on your theologians to do your politics for you. Okay? Let's, Let's keep that even. Okay? President Obama was giving an address around Easter, around the prayer breakfast time, and he said, and for me, and I'm sure for some of you, it's also a chance to remember the tremendous sacrifice that led up to that day. He was talking about Easter. And all that Christ endured, not just as a son of God, but as a human being. And what was the problem there? He said, a son of God. Now, that's not who Jesus was. So who Jesus is? He is the Son of God. There is a big distinction there. Now, whether that was just a misspeak or something or, or, or a, a spoken out of ignorance, I don't know. But a son of God versus the Son of God. Okay? The Son of God. that's how Scripture portrays Jesus Christ. The what? Only Son of God. There are many cults, many sects that want to discount his divinity and put him aside and make him a man that either God the Father adopted and made him to be the Savior. Uh, And and that's just wrong. Adoptionism is not what we believe in. He was the Son of God who left the right hand of the Father, took on the form of man, and, and came and gave his life for us. So Jesus was God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, why is that so important to us? Why should it matter to me that Jesus was God? I mean, can't God do whatever He wants? Can't He pick, uh, you know, Bubba off the street and make Him a Savior? That's not what He did. That's not what He did. So let's take a moment and look at other religions that have a concept of sin and a concept of repentance and forgiveness. And all of those other religions, and then I'm only just going to pick two that are that are simple and straightforward, but all other religions are without exception works based. They are based upon your efforts to get right with God however they define God. That means that any understanding of a remedy of sin as, as and I'm going to define sin as Christians define it, that separates us from God, their remedy is a better adherence to human rules by humans or a strict adherence to repetitive actions that get you right with God. As If you look at Islam, they have the five pillars of Islam. You have to do these five things your entire life. And if you do those right, we'll see there might be some hope for you. But all of these are man-made or man-made. Oriented solutions. Now, in in Islam, this is what uh, I'm just quoting from scholars here Islamic scholars. A Muslim, in order to reach heaven, needs to obey God and submit to Him. Islam means submission. As a Muslim, every bad we do will be questioned for, every good we do, we will be rewarded for. Our intentions must always be correct. If we submit fully, pray, give to charity, perform the pilgrimage when we are able, and strive in the way of God, then through his mercy, if he in his knowledge deems fit, he will guide us towards such actions which will help us attain his mercy and thus enter heaven. In Hinduism, if you do good and if you do enough good, you are reincarnated as something better. Eventually going through enough times of reincarnation to reach nirvana, The state of perfect peace that comes when craving is eliminated. It is the unconditional state experienced while alive with the extinguishing of the flames of greed, aversion, and delusion. Okay? And you just thought Nirvana was that music group. All right? Well, these are just two examples of what I'm talking about, but neither neither one provides eternal security. There is no eternal security in these two prominent religions. Nirvana may be reached, but even if it's reached, it is not an eternal state. And heaven in Islam is only guaranteed for those who die in a sanctioned jihad. Now that's their doctrine. I don't want you to be surprised at that. Heaven is only guaranteed for those who die in a sanctioned jihad. For everyone else, no matter how good you have been, or how much you have strived to attain for the things of of Allah in this life, it is still left to Allah to let you in. And, and no better words are those than Muhammad's words. When he was asked if he was going to heaven, he said, If Allah wills. If Allah wills. Now, if you ask someone who has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who knows the power of the Holy Spirit living within them, has been transformed by the renewing of their mind in God's word, if you ask them if they're going to heaven, what will the answer be? Yes, okay, it is our job as believers to know that we can have eternal security. Now I know that there are Christian groups that teach you you can't have eternal security because if you're, if you're out driving down the road and you see an attractive person and you look at that person with lust in your heart and you drive into the telephone pole and you die, you have an unconfessed sin on your heart, sorry, you're toast. That's, I don't find that in, in Scripture, really. I don't. Because if God saves us, if he says, there you are in the palm of my hand, and nobody can take you out of the palm of my hand, and I will protect you for all eternity, you are mine. I gave my son to die for you, to, give, to shed his blood for you. Uh, that's pretty certain that he's going to save me. He's not, you know, doesn't change his mind. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. If he says, you are mine... You are his, and eternal security is dependent upon his actions. Why? Because God himself came into this world in the form of Jesus Christ and gave his life for us that we might be reconciled to him. I mean, what other God is there who left their throne to come here? What other God is there who left all that they were and gave it all up to come here for the likes of us? This one. Just one. So why is it so important to understand that the Son of God, who was the same substance, the same essence as the Father, left the Father's side and came to earth? Well, it's important because the only individual who could get us back to the Father was the Father in His plan and His will. The one we offended with our sin. The one from whom we are alienated by our behavior and the one to whom we owe a debt that we can never pay has made a way that the debt is paid. Has made a way for that offense to be washed from us that we might be reconciled to him. Scripture is very clear on this. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody is good enough to get to God on their own. Nobody. Your sins have created a debt that has to be paid, Romans 6.23. Sounds familiar. Sounds like the Roman road, doesn't it? Okay, for those of you who know that. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the price of our sin is somebody's death. It might be our eternal death. Or it might be a substitutionary, satisfactory individual. And that individual had to be perfect to pay for our debt. And Isaiah says his name is the mighty God. Paul said in Colossians this way, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. And who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, the mighty God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There, there's no caveat there. Paul uses that word again and again, all, 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 all. Not some, not most, but all things hold together in Christ. He is the mighty God. Isaiah doesn't say that the child will be like the mighty God. He says that the child will be the mighty God. The New Testament gets, this, gets all this as well. John 1.1 1, 1, that we looked at before and, and looked at previously said he's not like God. He's just not with God. He is God. He's the Word made flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Paul speaks about this in Titus 2. When he speaks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says it. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. The child that Isaiah says we're looking for is God in the flesh. Mighty God. Right here. Mighty God. Now when we look at the Hebrew and how it's constructed, it confirms this. The Hebrew term El is used here, which is never, ever used in the book of Isaiah except when it talks about God. Never used except when it talks about God. It signifies strength. The literal translation might be the strong one. But to that, there's added some more Hebrew words in there. I won't go into that. I won't feign to be a Hebrew expert. I passed Hebrew. Okay, let's, let's just rejoice in that. Okay, uh, but, but when you take these constructs together, you get the omnipotence. So when it talks about the mighty God that the coming Savior will be, he's talking about the omnipotence, all-powerful. That is who Christ is. When he is mighty, he has all power, all authority, all, all, all. His real deity, his real omnipotence are first and foremost on Isaiah's mind when he talks about the coming Messiah. So, the Bible teaches... That Jesus Christ was God. Therefore, I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I worship the Father. I worship the Spirit. The Son emanates from the Father. The Spirit emanates from the Son and the Father. They are the same God. Three persons. We call that the Trinity. That's as good as I can explain it. Okay? But if I'm worshiping an individual who is not God, what happens then? Then I'm an idolater. If I'm an idolater, then I've committed one of the worst sins because the first commandment is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. And if Jesus is not God and I worship him, then I've broken the first commandment. The first and foremost of the commandments. That's pretty serious. It's very serious. And then in addition, if Jesus Christ said he was God, and the New Testament plainly supports that... And if the apostles affirm that he was God and he's not God, then Jesus is a liar and he deserved the death that he got, right? Because there are lots of impostures out there. Lots of people who say they have something, say they are from God. They're not. And if Jesus is a liar, then not only is he not worthy of our worship, he deserved his death, but of course he proved what? In his sacrificial death his resurrection, his ascension, that he was exactly whom the prophet said. He was the mighty God. It's a serious matter that we believe that Jesus Christ was divine, 100% divine, 100% human. Charles Spurgeon said this, Any error with regard to the divinity of Christ is absolutely fatal. And a man cannot be right in his judgment upon any part of the gospel unless he think rightly of him who is personally the very center of all the purposes of heaven and the foundation of all the hopes of the earth. Nor can we admit of any latitudinarianism here. Now how many of you use the word latitudinarianism in your life? Okay. Uh, Well, latitudinarianism was a 17th century position that said doctrine is not really important. Much like the, the very liberal Protestants today or some in the emergent church who might say, let's not get worked up over doctrine. Okay? That's what latitudinarianism was. And he says, nor can we admit to any of that because doctrine is important. We extend the right hand of fellowship to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and truth, but we cannot exchange our Christian greetings with those who deny him to be very God of very God. In the Nicene Creed, makes it very clear. He is very God, a very God. And we think, that's kind of a strange language, Rand. What does that mean? He is the same essence as the Father. He is the same substance of the Father. He and the Father are one. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. Spurgeon goes on. Now I may fairly use the Apostles' line of argument in reference to the Godhead and Sonship of Christ, of which his resurrection gave such a palpable demonstration. If Christ be not the Son of God, then our preaching is in vain, and our faith also is in vain, and yet we are in our sins. All the brightness of our hope is quenched forever. That rock on which our trust is built turns out to be nothing better than mere sand, if the divinity of Christ be not proved. All the joy and consolation we ever had in this world in our belief that his blood was sufficient to atone atone for sin has been but a dream of fancy and a figment of idle brains. All the communion we have ever had with him has been but an illusion and a trance and all the hopes we have in beholding his face in glory and of being satisfied when we awaken his likeness, are but the foulest delusions that ever cheated the hopes of man. If Christ is not God, we are lost. But he is. But he is. We know also that Christ proved himself to be the mighty God. From the feet that at last all the sins of all his people were gathered upon his shoulders and he bare them with his own body on the tree. The heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of mountains. All the tributary streams of iniquity and every drop of the sins of his people ran down and gathered into one vast lake. Deep as hell and sureless as eternity. All these met as it were in Christ's heart And he endured them all. He is the mighty God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not just a name. It's not just a way to talk about Jesus. It is a fact. And if it weren't a fact, then he could not atone for our sin. You had to act. You had to act in a fashion that was so far beyond our capability and our understanding with a love that was so great and so powerful to come into this world. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. This is the one who gave his life for us. Lord, a love like that is is beyond our comprehension, but yet it is here for us. You call us to receive it. You call us to believe today, for today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. It's not the next day. Let's not wait till Christmas Eve. You say, today is the day. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart, and you will be saved. This is the call of Scripture upon us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us today, move in our hearts, that we cannot deny this, That Christ has given his life for us. The mighty God has come into this world to atone for our sin. And only in him can we find salvation. We pray these things in his name. Amen.